Welcome to Gray Maybe, a limited series podcast and social experiment based on the topic of abortion. My name is Jillian Schmitz. I am a professional dancer, actor, teacher, author, artist, and cat lover. Through my own personal journey of recovery, I found that things aren't just black or white. The answers aren't only a yes or a no. For me, in my recovery, there's been mostly gray area and a lot of maybes. In most of my stories, you can find the gray maybe. I'll be reading my own personal stories and hopefully stories of others in an effort to help lessen the stigma and shame of abortion. If you'd like me to read your story on this podcast, anonymous or otherwise, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using to catch future episodes of Gray Maybe. A note before we begin, while the topic of abortion and my belief in it being easy and accessible to all people who can become pregnant is a comfortable topic for me, sharing my own personal stories is not. I have a justifiable amount of fear of possible hostility and violence, both in person and or online. I also anticipate the possibility of judgment ranging from my own family members to strangers, in addition to the potentiality of losing certain work opportunities for publicizing my own experiences. I'm telling my story through the lens of my own experience. The revelation of my process is mine to tell. If you disagree with me or my views or story, know that I'm not speaking on anything other than my own experiences and viewpoints. Take what you like and leave the rest. Any feelings my story activates in the listener is for the listener to process and recover from. Any criticism you have based on my experience and choices are yours, and they're not my burden to carry. Welcome back, everyone. In the last episode, I told my abortion story and categorized it as what I've dubbed a convenient abortion. Convenient based on a familiar perception or attitude of uninformed or anti-choice talking points. In my story in the first episode, it becomes quickly apparent that there is nothing convenient about my abortion, and I can assure there's nothing convenient about any abortion. In response to the episode, listener and friend Melissa Adelia Calisans said introspectively, the convenience that comes from this procedure goes to men. If you aren't familiar with the categorization I'm describing, I encourage you to listen to episode one for reference. Before today's story, I want to stress what a pivotal time we're in right now. There are actions we can take with the election approaching November 8th, 2022. You can help reverse the bans and restrictions that have gone into effect and stop any further assault on women's and pregnant people's rights and reproductive freedoms by voting for candidates that support women's health care and freedom of choice. Please have a plan to vote and talk to your friends about their plans. Familiarize yourself with your state's rules and regulations and vote like your freedom depends on it because now, more than ever, it does. For more information on your state's laws, go to vote.org. If you listened to the first episode, I cannot thank you enough. Anyone who has chosen to share something personal that they've experienced, specifically if it's traumatic, knows how valuable the feeling of being listened to, heard, and fully seen is. It's a gratitude that's hard to communicate in words. It goes without saying, if you posted or shared the episode, left a positive comment, rated five stars, the sentiment is twofold. I've been so encouraged by women who have reached out with support and encouragement. Some shared their own investigation into why they were holding back their stories or even muting the podcast around others and tiptoeing around the word abortion. 
having the privilege of hearing their process of revelations has been a surprising side effect of this experiment and so welcomed. Although it's taken me a lot of time, recovery, and soul-searching to tell my secrets, I'm glad I have, as I truly believe my secrets keep me sick, and they keep me small. In this episode, deep breath, I'll be sharing my second convenient abortion story. I had just finished performing at a well-attended and well-known dancer event when I ran into an acquaintance named Timo. I'd known Timo for a few years and come to know him as a staple of this monthly event. He used to dance but now worked for an athletic company. He still loved being amongst dancers and watching the performances and was well-known and liked amongst the community. He was tall and slim, had a big smile that wrapped around his whole face, showcasing his dimples and strong jawline. His skin was the color of caramel and his body and spirit always seemed so relaxed. He hung out with a lot of female dancers and seemed like such a nice guy. I thought he was probably constantly getting put in the friend zone, because that's kind of how I had categorized him. A few nights after the show, I got a message from him complimenting my performance. This was common. He was always sending me little messages to say hello or see how I was. He had been suggesting we hang out for a while, and to me, since I'd categorized him as just a friend, Years ago when I'd met him, I saw no problem with us hanging out, especially since I was in a bout of boredom and a bit lonely. We had a perfectly platonic time and decided to do it again soon. Soon became the next night. He came over to hang out and watch TV, and things started to change. He had always been complimentary to me, but now it had shifted to strictly romantic compliments. Timo was a nice guy. Why had I never seriously considered him? He was saying such nice things to me, and it wasn't like I owed him anything, but I was getting high off of his endearing words. Although I had come to realize I had a complicated relationship to sex and intimacy, bordering on needing professional help, I was overcome by the need to consume him. That night, my friend zoning of Timo ceased to exist, and so did my intentions of not acting out sexually. It was supposed to be casual, but there's just nothing really casual about me. As soon as things began with Timo, they started to end. It was becoming increasingly clear that we didn't have a lot in common, deeper than our surface friendship. He was extremely social, and I liked being at home if I wasn't working. He needed to constantly surround himself with a barrage of friends, and I liked smaller, more one-on-one type social events. A majority of his friends were women, and although I'd never considered myself a jealous person, it started to bother me. One night, one of those just friends showed up unannounced at his apartment and he'd offered her to stay the night in his living room. I was also staying the night, and for a brief moment, because I didn't know any other details, and because we were sleeping together but not exclusive, I wasn't really sure what was going on, or where I fit into the equation. I remember feeling reassured that I got to be in the bedroom with him instead of where she was on the couch. The situation felt extra uncomfortable because I knew this girl. She was an acquaintance and fellow dancer. I knew they were friends, but were they the same type of friends that Timo and I were? I didn't know. And I also didn't know how I felt about her knowing about my dating business, as Timo and I hadn't really gone public. I studied her face for any hint or reaction to being set up on the couch. Did it seem to her as unusual? Was she usually in his room? 
Why was she staying there anyway? It didn't seem to be an emergency. It seemed more like a, oops, I forgot to tell you we're at capacity already tonight, type thing. I didn't say much about it, and at the time, I felt like it was way too early for me to be that girl, whatever that girl was. I was not having fun more than I was having fun, and so I ended up breaking things off not long after that night. Timo didn't want us to stop seeing each other, and even though I'd made my decision and was intent on moving on, he was still calling and trying to get me to see him. The following week, I had a job being a choreographer's assistant on a very popular TV series at the time. The choreographer was also my main mentor. We passed our downtime on set catching up. I was explaining to him my most recent relationship, if you could call it that, with Timo and how it ended. He questioned why I broke it off so quickly. I tried to explain, but he thought I may have overreacted, or at least not given enough of an effort to properly communicate my issues or needs with him, and that maybe he deserved another chance. My mentor was always rooting for the underdog, and I presume he saw that in this story with Timo. I started to feel a little pit in my stomach. What if he was right? Although I had started dating other people, Timo was still trying to meet and work things out. I had met someone new, and even though I liked him, I was feeling more and more guilty about how I had ended things with Timo. At least fully finish one thing before starting another, the words of my mentor echoed in my head. Timo and I had a series of long talks, and I felt like we'd reached an understanding. It seemed like what my mentor had said was true, that maybe I just didn't communicate my needs and expectations clearly. For a moment, things were great, just like when they'd started. But quickly, our one-on-one time became a burden, and I was the downer because I didn't want to hang out at his friend's house at all hours of the night with people I didn't really care for. We started to argue. I refused to see or hang out with him if he was with a bunch of people. My jealousy was back, and it was increasing. One night, we were supposed to have plans. I told him he could come over to my house and hang out or not, but one-on-one time was what I was interested in, not parties or get-togethers at his friend's house or watching him play some sport and sitting on the sidelines. He didn't come over. The following night was the night before Thanksgiving. We agreed on spending some time, just the two of us. Immediately after we'd been intimate that night, we noticed a condom mishap. I silently panicked, remembering what can happen. I reminded myself I now had options. Plan B was easy to get. Even easier was my friend's dad, who was an OBGYN, and had the equivalent of the morning after pill he could get me. He would be at the Thanksgiving dinner I was planning on attending the following day. I corresponded with my friend, and she assured me her dad would bring the Plan B. The next morning, I was ready to get to my Thanksgiving destination and down those pills. Timo didn't seem to be in too big a hurry, and made it a priority to first stop at his work soccer game before he dropped me off at home across town. I started getting antsy and irritated. Knowing that the pill's effectiveness wanes depending on how quickly you take it, he ushered me with, I've never gotten a girl pregnant, to which I quickly responded, that you know of. I eventually made it home, quickly got ready, and headed to my friend's house and took the pills. I felt immediate relief and enjoyed the Thanksgiving festivities. Later that weekend, I still struggled to get any one-on-one time with Timo. I couldn't get him alone on the phone or in person. He was always around a traveling party bus of people, I started to realize I wasn't insane for not wanting this, for not being cool with it, or even being jealous at all of the females I was sharing him with. I was coming to terms with the fact that although I'm not a jealous person in most scenarios, he was quite literally driving me crazy. With anyone else, I wasn't jealous, but he was bringing behavior and feelings out of me that I wasn't comfortable with and I didn't recognize in myself. I did my due diligence. I gave him another shot. I expressed my feelings and people are who they are. I pulled the plug for the second time on Timo. He protested again, but
but this time I was done. Although I would miss the chemistry we had, and it was intense, I was starting to recover from my dysfunction in my personal and sexual relationships. I wanted better for myself. I wanted a normal, healthy relationship, not one where I confused drama with passion. I didn't want to only want someone when they didn't want me. I didn't want to only find people who were unhealthy for me, attractive and desirable. Two weeks later, I spent my 26th birthday at a restaurant with a group of friends. A last-minute get-together my friend Laura had planned for me. It was casual and nice. I remember being happy to do something on my birthday and relieved it was casual because I was particularly tired that week. The second week of December, I spent in rehearsals for a New Year's gig in the Bahamas for a big entertainment company I'd worked with for many years. The week-long rehearsal process was grueling and I was exhausted. After rehearsal one day, I stopped at my chiropractor's on the way home. I was early for my appointment and was so tired, I decided to shut my eyes for 10 minutes. I awoke from a dead sleep in a panic. I almost missed my appointment. I was out so hard and fast. I was so groggy going into the appointment, my chiropractor asked if I was okay. I got back in the car after the appointment and thought about it. It wasn't like me to be this tired. Fuck. I stopped at the CVS on the corner and bolted straight to the condom section, which is always where the pregnancy test section is. Like a joke. If you screw up with this product, you're going to need this product. I slid the box on the checkout counter, and the pretty cashier looked at it and then looked at me. Oh, congratulations, she said with a giddy smile. I went off on her in my head. Are you serious? First of all, who comments on a pregnancy test? Second, who says congratulations before someone even takes the test? If you're going to say anything, which in no circumstance should you, the best thing to say is probably good luck, because it's non-denominational. Good luck if you want to be. Good luck if you don't want to be. I didn't say anything. I flashed her a deadpan look, gave her cash, and briskly left with my baggie of, I hope not. I got home and tore open the package like I was starving. No real need for directions, but I read them anyway. It was the digital kind, pretty hard to screw up. Pissed on it, waited. Pregnant. Fucking no. I did the second one. I knew it was going to be the same. Pregnant. Fuck. I knew what to do, but that still didn't stop the panic. The eminent ticking time bomb feeling was back, and I couldn't get a deep breath. My body was shaking, reading the situation as an emergency. I looked up the appropriate numbers to call, but it was 9 p.m. at night, and everything would be closed. I was pacing. The first thing I needed was to take the edge off. I went to the corner store, got a bottle of wine and a pack of cigarettes, the only way I knew at the time to cope. I knew instantly I wouldn't tell Timo. I never questioned it. Maybe it was because I already knew I didn't want it, and I didn't want his opinion. I didn't want to do this right now, and certainly not with him. There was no nagging within me, no considerations, no guilt or contemplation. I couldn't take someone else weighing in again. I didn't have the energy to include him, so I didn't. He continued to reach out and try and be friends with me, and I lied to him and told him I'd been advised by a therapist not to communicate with him any longer. He respected the excuse and stopped contacting me. I didn't want to go through my health insurance. I was too ashamed of the repeat, and I was short on time. It was mid-December. I was about to leave to travel for Christmas, and immediately returning, I would leave again for the Bahamas for work. I spent the night in panic, panting with shallow breath, and drinking the whole bottle of wine while chain-smoking. I fucking hated myself. My tears were full of anger at myself. The dialogue in my mind was mean incessant, and unrelenting. The next morning, I had one more rehearsal before we broke for the holidays. I woke up extra early from the shitty night's sleep, my face 
puffy and my body groggy, but my mind was reeling. I got to the rehearsal space early, the same rehearsal space I sat at three years earlier in the same situation. I sat in my car and looked at my planner. I called numbers. No one could fit me in before I left town. I couldn't let myself lose it, but I was quickly approaching desperation. I could feel the squeeze of an invisible noose tightening around my neck. I saw my friend walking up to the building, whose dad was the OBGYN. I knew he did the procedure. I caught her and whispered in her ear. She said he could probably fit me in and gave me his contact. It felt divine. Thank God for my friend's dad. I left him a message. The rehearsal wrapped after lunch. I sat in my car and listened to the message my friend's dad had left me. I called him back and made the appointment. Finally, I could catch my breath. He asked me a bunch of questions and reminded me I needed someone to drop me off and pick me up. I was familiar with all the information. I went home and continued to drink the edge off. My appointment was in a couple days. I needed a ride. Pre-Uber, pre-Lyft, I scanned my friend list in my head. I couldn't imagine asking any of them, not because they wouldn't do it, but because I'd have to explain. I'd have to tell them. I was afraid of what they would think of me. At the time, I didn't know any friends that had had an abortion. Most of my friends were men, and I felt just as uncomfortable telling them. I texted a close friend, Danielle, who knew I'd been through this once already. I swallowed all of my pride and summoned my courage to text her. I reminded myself that I'd always been there for her, and this was no big deal, and that she must know that I would never ask unless I really needed it, because that's just how I am. I told her. She seemed empathetic. Good start, I thought. I asked her if she could drive me to and from the appointment on Tuesday. She said she was working that day, so depending on the time, she could, but it would have to be after work. She asked if I could find someone else and added she could do it if no one else was available, but my mind had already moved on. It was hard enough for me to ask, let alone admit to her, I had no one else. Sitting with myself in that moment was one I'll never forget. Instead of seeing how much I needed others and that eventually everybody needs to ask for help, it solidified that I could only really count on myself. It verified all the reasons I could never ask anyone for anything. There are very few times in my life that I felt like I truly needed help when I had no other choice but to ask. At this point in my life, it was uncharacteristic of me to ask for anything. I was a total and complete mess, but no one knew on the outside. I liked it this way. No one knew any of my secrets. I felt like this protected me, that it kept me safe. This was the one time I needed help. I was devastated in how much resentment I'd felt in that moment. I'd helped her out so many times over the years, and I was hurt in my unrequited ask. Not allowing the dignity of my own feelings, I quickly reminded myself, it was my mess. No one should have to help me clean it up. It was my own fault. She's not obliged to help me. It's not her job to save me from the fallout of the choices of my life. At the time, this was a common narrative for me. No one could ever be as mean to me as I could be to myself. I looked through my recent texts with people. Most were work-related acquaintances. People I'd be mortified to know I was in the predicament I was in and doing what I was about to do. Then I saw a recent conversation I'd had with Jonah. A week prior, we'd had dinner to catch up. We met on a music video a few months back and struck up a flirty friendship. From the minute I met him, I had a crush on Jonah, and sometimes I thought he liked me too. But then he'd do or say something that made me think I was only a friend to him, and that maybe he was a little out of my league. 
Jonah and I always talked about our past relationships. The more painful, the better. He was constantly talking about what he called Estella, the name taken from a movie he loved, made in the 90s called Entropy, and also Streetcar Named Desire, both of which had main characters that were named Stella. Jonah described Estella as a once-in-a-lifetime and all-consuming love. He would epitomize his past loves with Shakespearean drama and adoration, his personal Stella akin to Romeo's Juliet and Hamlet's Ophelia. He knowingly admitted to loving broken women and sometimes staying too long in relationships because he himself was broken. It was romantic to listen to him describe these women and relationships with such worship and weakness. I appreciated his stories, and at the same time, I was overcome with envy that he didn't feel that way about me. I sometimes felt inadequate around him, not just in regards to his personal desires, but that maybe no one had ever felt that way about me. I texted him, and after a few courtesies, I bluntly declared I was in trouble and needed help. Without hesitation, he agreed to drive me. Jonah saved the day. It was a long and weird weekend, waiting until Tuesday, summed up by what I can only describe as severely dysfunctional. My second abortion day couldn't have been more different than my first. I put on comfortable, warm clothing and had stocked up on pain relievers. Jonah texted me he was out front. It was raining and windy. I got into his car, my hair blown and wet from outside. He joked about the weather, saying, it never rains in Southern California, and drove us all the way from Hollywood to Granada Hills. He dropped me off, parked the car, and met me in the small rectangular gray waiting room. It wasn't busy. A stray older woman sitting in a chair, and a woman and her child playing quietly on a wooden roller coaster toy in the corner. My friend's dad, the OBGYN, burst through the door next to the receptionist. He focused on me immediately, welcomed me with a big smile, and embraced me in a bear hug. The pills didn't work, eh? It's okay, he said with a lighthearted chuckle. I was overwhelmed with his kindness, and I still am to this day. He glanced at Jonah. Jonah and I both knew he thought Jonah was the guy. Neither one of us corrected him. I filled out paperwork and was brought to the back room quickly. There were no this-is-my-abortion papers to fill out, no stupid butterfly sticker. I don't remember changing my clothes. I don't remember if I had to take off my jewelry. A brief sonogram was done to confirm how far along. This time, I wouldn't be put out. I'd be awake. The room seemed large, but I was in a small partitioned area. Even though the walls were just curtains, it felt more private. The whole place had a soft pink lighting. Everything was either a pale pink or a peach and white. A nurse in all white perched herself like an angel above my right shoulder and offered her hand for me to hold. I was told I'd feel a pinch, and then the procedure would start soon afterwards. I felt the pinch, and then discomfort, and then pain. Then worse pain. It sounded industrial, like a shop class in high school. It felt like you think it would, and like it sounded. At first, I didn't want to squeeze the nurse's hand. I thought I could bear the pain alone, and then I couldn't help it. I had to displace the agony. She was tough, tougher than me, and she was kind, kinder than I was to myself. The procedure was quick, and I didn't have to hang out for too long after. I wasn't disoriented or confused. My body worked fairly normal. I walked myself into the waiting area, and Jonah sat in the drab, gray-colored waiting room, with a ghostly white look of seriousness on his face. 
I liked that about Jonah. He always knew the emotional weight of things. He wasn't going to pretend it was anything other than what it was. It wasn't his first time. I knew he had been here before. It wasn't his first abortion, either. I finished up at the front desk and set up my two-week checkup appointment, downed some preliminary painkillers, and we walked out. The sky was cloudy, and it felt cold. It was still drizzling, and the wind was still slapping across one side than the other side of my face. He walked up next to me on the left. Are you okay? I didn't answer. I didn't stop walking, just stared at the cracked cement, and then literally cracked emotionally. It sounded deep and low, guttural. He put his arm around me as we walked, in an effort to shield me from the cruel weather and a cruel world. I got in the car and gathered myself. I had successfully discharged the stress. I just had to do that, I explained. He understood. We hadn't discussed how after my appointment would go. He invited me over to watch movies so that I didn't have to be alone. It sounded like a better idea than walling myself up in my apartment, so I took him up on it. As I settled into his cozy leather living room couch, he asked me if I wanted an anti-anxiety. I figured it couldn't hurt, and 20 minutes later, I felt the best I'd ever felt. The most relaxed and pain-free I think I've ever been. He asked what movie I wanted to watch, and I told him, Entropy, and he groaned. He didn't think it was a good idea to watch it. I insisted. After all, I was feeling fucking great. Completely pain and anxiety-free. We watched the movie and then another, and it was late. He offered that I could stay the night. I had stayed the night a few times before at Jonah's, slept right next to him in his bed, and nothing ever happened. That's how I knew he wasn't interested in me. I was starting to get so tired, my eyes wouldn't stay open. He walked me to his room and asked if I needed anything. I dumped myself on his bed, still in my sweatshirt and sweatpants, and curled into a half crescent. I was on his side of the bed, but I didn't care to move. I was almost asleep when he came back into the room and laid next to me. He was asking me questions. I could barely stay awake. The questions seemed easy at first and then harder. Then he was silent for a while. I started to drift, and he turned the lights out. I felt him shift on the bed and then roll over close to me. He curled up behind me and started to burrow his face into my neck. He started kissing my neck and saying things, but I couldn't make them out. Or maybe he was just breathing. His hand fit in the curve of my waist, and he traced the outline of my hip down to my thigh. I could feel him getting hard. I had finally made it. Jonah was finally attracted to me. I officially qualified as broken enough for him to be interested in me. The guy who could only love sad girls was finally getting a hard-on for me. I had wanted Jonah to touch me like this any other time, but now. Now, it felt sick. Tears started falling down my face. Why now? Why did I have to be annihilated inside for Jonah to like me? What did he even expect to happen right now in my state? I couldn't process it. What are you doing? I mumbled, groggily but firm. He stopped. Oh my God. You're right. I don't know. Jesus, I'm sorry. He rolled on his back and stared at the ceiling with a heavy exhale. I couldn't be mad at him. Jonah wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't good or bad, he just was. He had helped me out when I had absolutely no one. He took care of me from beginning to end. No judgment, no questions, no hesitation. 
I couldn't blame him for being as fucked up with women as I was with men. I stayed curled up on his side of the bed, facing away from him, and fell asleep. In the days following, I expected depression. It never came. I waited for the tears that never arrived. I didn't second-guess my decision, not even once. I didn't compulsively run scenarios over and over in my head. I felt guilty about not feeling guilty. I only felt immediate relief over and over again. I didn't know that different abortions could feel differently. I didn't feel an earth-shattering splinter of before and after like I did with the first one. Did I break my threshold with the first? Did my previous experience help me navigate this one, making it less traumatic? The only thing that was just as present as the first was the shame and the fear of judgment. Was I the person people made punch card jokes about? I didn't know anyone who had had one abortion, let alone more than one. There was no gray area in regards to my decision, but there was in my head about how I thought I should feel about myself. I felt shame and ashamed. What was the difference? Apparently, shame is generally used as a noun, whereas ashamed is generally used as an adjective, meaning shame is the actual feeling, an effect or emotion, which is considered to be a painful one, while ashamed is feeling shame itself. I felt the weight of both, and guilt for not feeling guilty, and I packed it up and stuffed it down and carried it in a way that no one could see, picking and choosing if someone deserved to know my scarlet A. I didn't feel bad about not telling Timo either. I do wonder if he still thinks he's never gotten a girl pregnant. Some people might argue that Timo had a right to know. I don't know if he has a right to know, but I didn't feel safe telling him. It wasn't because I was afraid of Timo. He was the least scary guy I knew. I didn't know what his response would be. I felt like he would have agreed with my decision wholeheartedly, but I didn't have the bandwidth at the time to include him, so I didn't. I gave him the convenience of not knowing, and it was survival for me not to include him. I don't know if I could have endured a repeat of my previous experience. Trauma changes you. It changes who you are, how you think, how you behave, and sometimes the choices you make. The Guttmacher Institute reports one in four women will have an abortion by the age of 45, as published on their site and cited in a Planned Parenthood article, both of which I'll add in the show notes. With one in four women having an abortion in the United States, we all know enough women to know someone who's had an abortion. If you don't know anyone around you personally who's had an abortion, it's likely because you're not a safe person to share that information with. What makes one unsafe is a broad range. It could be situational, like my past and how it informed my present with Timo. Or it could be because the unsafe person has shown themselves to be someone who is judgmental, suffers from black and white thinking, has strict or strong religious beliefs, makes flippant comments on the topic, or has certain political preferences and voting histories. Or they could be physically intimidating or have a history of being abusive or misogynistic. So I'll say it again. If you're an adult, and you don't know someone in your life who has had an abortion, it's because you're not a safe person to confide in. The statistics are what they are. You're not an anomaly. You're just not safe to tell. A great deal of the distress of both of my abortions was that I didn't feel like I had many people to tell that were safe, let alone confide in. It was paired with my nature at the time, 
which was to keep secrets because I was afraid that if people knew my truth, they could really hurt me. I would be judged, which translated to being rejected and unloved. I didn't know where most people stood in their views on abortion, and I couldn't afford to find out I had guessed wrong in my most vulnerable of moments. So I kept it all inside, tucked it away, and hoped if I buried it down far enough, I could forget about it. I didn't forget about it, and although I did mention them from time to time, in moments of supported privacy of close friends or safe acquaintances, my abortion stories were the absolute last stories I wanted to share publicly. So I asked myself, why is that? If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you were able to find something relatable in my story. As I mentioned earlier, part of this podcast is a social experiment to see if in telling my story, I can embolden other listeners who have had abortions to tell theirs. If you'd like me to read your abortion story, anonymous or otherwise, on this podcast, please email graymaybestories at gmail.com. G-R-E-Y-M-A-Y-B-E-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at gmail.com. Reminder, there's a very important election coming up November 8th, 2022. Please have a voting plan. Know the rules and regulations of your state and vote like your freedom depends on it. Because now more than ever, it does. For more information on voting in your state, go to vote.org. Thank you to everyone who has helped make this Gray Maybe podcast happen. Producer and editor, Roderick Barge. Cover photo by Jose Perez. Music licensed by Pixabay. Special counsel, Jada Ellingham and Roderick Barge. If you'd like to support this podcast, please rate, share, comment, and subscribe. Until next time, bye for now.